take one of our Bibles as our gift that are in the foyer on the table, or if you have a smartphone or an iPad, rather than play uh, Candy Crush during the sermon, that you'll download the ESV uh, Bible and have it to look at and to go back and forth because we're covering a lot of territory. And that ESV app, unless you do the study one, is free. So we want to encourage you because we are a people who love the Word of God because of its richness and its fullness, because of its descriptions of God and His ways with men, and because of men and their ways with God. So we encourage you to have your own Scripture, but we do print, as a courtesy to you, we do uh, print the Scripture each week. And this week, because we're covering all of chapter 17 practically, it's, it's over 50 verses on the greatest story in the life of David. We're in the series, The Life of David, and everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. Everybody knows the story. But I've heard the story in two ways that I think are incorrect. Or they certainly leave us wanting for the real heart of the conflict that is taking place on this battlefield that we go back to in the life of Israel. You know the story. The story is is that there's a marauding band of Philistines who have come up from the coast and they're now in the Piedmont or the hill country and they want to take and locate in the mountains that surround Bethlehem. And then from there they can have raiding parties to go down into Bethlehem and hopefully they can be rid of Saul and the armies of Israel once and for all. It was originally their territory, their land, and they're still trying to get it back. They're like pirates that have cruised in and they've parked themselves here in the valley and all their army is on one side of the valley and Israel's army is on the other side. And it says that the... um, It says in verse, hold on, it says in verse 21, Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And we understand that each day that there would have been skirmishes that would have gone on. But the Philistines have one that they call a champion who comes forward onto the battlefield, we believe in the valley, and daily he taunts and he mocks Israel. But in essence, and they understood this to be the case, what he's doing is he's not laughing at their stature and their size. He's not laughing at their armament. He's laughing at their God. As we see David saying, You're an an uncircumcised Philistine. You're an idol worshiper. And idols are dead gods. They're not real. They're made by man, either carved from stone or wood. But we serve the living God. So when you're defying Israel, you're really blaspheming, dishonoring, and trying with this battle and conflict to take all glory that is due from, for God for yourself. 
David steps forward as the champion, the representative of Israel to fight for God's people. To fight just like he as a shepherd boy had fought for his flock. He's going to fight for the flock of Israel. Here's the two ways that I've heard it put forward. It's an underdog story. Little shepherd boy David with his his woolen tunic and a sling stands up against a man that we believe to be approximately nine feet nine inches tall, almost ten feet tall. And this man who is wearing approximately 125 pounds of armor, as Robert Alter would say, he is a military machine with impediments. He even has a manservant, almost like a, he's bringing with him a cart. He's got a manservant who holds his shield. And so he's not only got the, the spear, the javelin on his back that's as long as a weaver's rod, he not only has a helmet of iron, breastplate, shin plates, he is a military technician. I mean, he has the latest in armament. He has a man alongside who's carrying his shield. And David, one little boy named David, the underdog, stood up against the giant Goliath, against all odds, and he brought him down. And in secular society, and in, in our world today, I have often heard that that issue is like a David and Goliath issue. We're David going up against Goliath. We're the underdogs. And we're going to throw ourselves into it with the hope that we can pull it off. Because David pulled it off. It's just taking raw courage and youthful innocence. And the underdog will triumph. And I love underdog movies. They're my favorite movies. I love underdog movies. But this is not a story that highlights David as the underdog. David, as Samuel is written, David is not the object that the author wants us to see to get all the glory. Malcolm Gladwell has another way to say it. He, he is popular. Uh, you can download his TED Talk or you can read David and Goliath. But Malcolm Gladwell puts forward David not as the humble uh, underdog shepherd, but he puts him forward as a very wise soldier. He puts him forward as one who had trained and honed his slingshot skills in the, uh, with the sheep pen. And that he was like a, a prized archer that the slingshot that he had, the slingshot that he had, was not just a humble, common weapon. No, the slingshot would have placed him like an archer against infantry. So that David came against Goliath. This is how Malcolm Gladwell tells it. Goliath was someone who struggled with an overactive pituitary gland. And so like Andre the Giant, he was very large, but he was very slow. He was cumbersome. 
And probably he had that type of giganta disease or, or problem that gave him poor sight. So that when David came out onto the battlefield, he was straining to see him. Or he needed assistance to come. So Goliath is visually impaired, cumbersome, and yes, he's all decked out in this garb, but David, as a skilled tactician, could run circles around him. So in one side, we see David is put forward as the, the humble, weak underdog that rises to the top. And on the other side, he is skilled and strong and savvy, and he conquers Goliath. But that's not what we see in this scripture. The very last words that were read here were the words, there was no sword in the hand of David. That's significant. That points back to verse 45. David, he declares what the conflict is in this text. David declares what the issue at stake is. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. Verse 46. This day, the Lord, not I, but the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. The conflict is between Goliath and his false trust and his false and small gods. And in his trust in his sword and his spear and his javelin, David is, is as much taunting him and saying, is that all you've got? Is all you've got is your armor? Is all you've got against the living God, a javelin and a spear? Man, my faith is not in those things. My faith is not even in myself and my strength and my power. My faith, my confidence, my worship is to give glory by placing all of those things in the hand of the living God. And he will fight. And he will fight for himself when he finds a willing servant who will fight for the Lord's people. And David was that man. Let's look again at this battle scene because this, this battle scene includes more than just David and Goliath. It includes King Saul, whom the Lord has rejected. And it includes a cowering Israel behind Saul. I want you to look at Saul. We're going to look at Goliath and David as we look at this scripture. If you look, Verse 11 is, a, is included, it wasn't read, but verse 11 of 1 Samuel 17 is very telling. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. It was back in chapter 8, verse 20, when Israel went to Samuel, the prophet, and they said, give us a king. Give us a king. And in verse 20 out of chapter 8, they said, we want a king like the other nations, a king that will fight for us. 
it was the expectation of Israel as well as other nations that the king would be the one who would step up as the representative for his people in the fight. He would lead the charge, as it were. And certainly, if the conditions were met where it's one-on-one, where one champion will represent a people and another champion will represent his people, and the outcome will be determined upon those two in contest with one another. In chapter 9, verse 2, we find that Saul was selected the king because he was a head and shoulders in height above all the others. Samuel chose him. And we learned last week that out of chapter 16, verse 7, God looks not at the external, but He looks at the heart. And Samuel, like Israel, had made a mistake and chosen a man who was handsome, who was strong, who was tall. And we found that he didn't have a heart to serve God as a king. He was his own man. And as he drifted into independence from God, he drifted the relationship that he initially had with God changed. It wasn't so much that when we say God rejected him, we think, oh, God stopped the relationship. The relationship was ended by Saul. And God said, because you no longer have a relationship with me, you will live in that coldness of independence. And we find at that point, Saul becomes a man who is very anxious. And he's even more concerned about what people think. We find that Saul is someone that is filled with worry. And here in verse 11, he's dismayed. The word for dismayed means to be broken. The word means to be greatly afraid, demoralized. Panic sets in. You start to crack under pressure. We read here in verse 16 that for 40 days, which is the perfect, holy, complete number in the Bible, it means utter, it's complete. If the earth is covered with water in 40 days, it will be completely saturated. Everything will completely die. So in 40 days, they are completely, utterly dismayed. And this is, a, this is the fruit of the lack of a relationship that Saul has with God. With God, there is no fear of man. Without God, it becomes a consuming fear. What, is, what does this look like? Ed Welch, in his book, which has the title that says it all, when God is small and people are big, when we trade a big God and put people larger in His place, when He becomes very small in our thought and our faith and our trust and our relationship and people have become big, we exhibit a fear of man. What does a fear of man look like? It looks like Peer pressure. And as I tick through this, just silently think, do I struggle with this? Codependency. People pleaser. And here comes one that your pastor is very familiar with. Approval suck. 
jealous for compliments. Conflict avoidance. We see these things with Saul, and not only Saul, but we see it with Israel. God has become very small. People have become very, very big. They're cowering in their tents. They're afraid of not only one man, Goliath, but all of the Philistines. And these are the people of God, paralyzed by their fear of man. Indecisive procrastinator. Gossipy comparer. Think about that. And this is not just something. I know sometimes when we think about gossip, the first thing we do is we make it gender-related and we think about women or girls. I'll tell you my experiences. I think guys gossip uh, more than, uh, than girls. But it's looking at someone comparing ourselves to them and the way we level ourselves with them because they seem to be better than us and we fear that as we gossip about their weakness. And then the last one, a white liar. A white liar. Always compensate, always covering so that I won't be seen as small or so I won't be enslaved or so I won't be controlled or so I, won't, so I can get the approval of others. It's also known as Blame shifting. Ed Welch goes on and he says, that's one of four ways that we fear man. This was the detail of how we fear people will see me. The other is people will reject me. People will physically hurt me. Or the world wants me to fear people. In other words, the world wants me to fear community. They don't want me to conform to, or they, they don't want me to be a clone. I, I need to be independent. Or I need to protect myself. I need to protect my feelings. I need to protect my feelings. I need to, I need to stay the lone wolf. And so we avoid community. But it, part of it is a fear of being vulnerable and exposed even in the safety of a community group. A fear of men. Saul is in his tent, Israel's in their tent, and all the while Goliath continues to taunt, defy God, to try to shame God, to discredit God. I know Saul. I know Saul very well. God had a different plan in mind. In 1 Samuel, uh, wait a minute, that's not what I want. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, this, this tells us the type of king that God had in mind. In times past, when Saul was king over us, this is the coronation, this is, you go fast forward, this is the coronation of David when he's being installed as the king of Israel. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. When did he do that? He's doing it here. He led out Israel from their, the taunts of, I'm going to make you slaves, or I'm going to, to kill you. He led them out of that. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be, what, king over Israel? 
No, you shall be prince over Israel. And if you want to see that this is not an isolated truth, 2 Samuel, which we don't have a slide for, chapter 6, verse 21. This is what David says to Michael, Saul's daughter, when she laughs at him and mocks him because he is dancing in front of the ark, giving glory to God in his worship. It, and that is the dance, was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. What's going on here? The king that God wants, that he did not find in Saul, was a king who would be a shepherd at heart over the flock, Israel. And he would be a prince, but that begs the question. If the king that God wants, a king who's a man after his own heart, if, a, if he wants a king, why does he call him a prince? Who's the king then? If David is to be the prince over Israel, who's to be the king over Israel? Class, who's to be the king over Israel? Jehovah. God. And Saul says, I'm the king, I'm the boss. And then man comes to him with a threat, and he's like, I have no power, I'm bankrupt. David, previously anointed, we saw last week, by Samuel. Now we're told in chapter 16 that the Spirit of the Lord was with David and attended him from that point on in all that he did. The Spirit of the Lord is with David to be king. But he always, verse 45 again, David said to the Philistine, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel you have defiled. It is to Saul, he wanted his glory. David says, I want the glory to go to the Lord. I'm not going to fight to protect my name or my life. I'm going to throw my life in the breach to protect and honor the name of God. Man. I love David. This week, man, I felt a change coming over me because I was like, how I have pulled back, pulled back, choosing many ways that, that I could look and I'd say, it's because of the fear of man that I've been going to pull back. And I see David saying, I don't fear man because I fear, meaning worship or revere the name of the Lord. And out of that relationship, when Goliath comes and taunts, David hears and sees something different than Saul in Israel. He doesn't see the fear of man. Notice how many times when we see Saul and Israel talk, they talk about not that Philistine, but they talk about Goliath. In other words, they talk about Goliath the giant, this imposing figure. What does David say? David calls him properly an uncircumcised, meaning 
dirty, unwashed Philistines. Now, it's not that they don't appreciate cultures or he's trying to be overly insulting, but what he's saying is, here's a man that has no relationship with God and all of that nation has a relationship with idols and a false trust there. And they are defiling, as he would say, the living God. My God lives. And the words strike David to the heart. In verse 25, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. The word for champion is one that the word for champion is one that goes between. He's a man of intervention. He's a man in between the ranks. So in the gap, the man in the breach is the champion. In verse 2, we see Goliath come out. There came out a champion. He's their man. In verse 23 that I just read, we see that they behold the champion. They see him. And I'm going to make a remark about that in just a second. In verse 51, finally, they saw, this is the Philistines now, they saw with the same degree of beholding that their champion was dead. This word, for Saul is a very interesting word. In 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verses 24 and 25, we read this. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Now this is Goliath, the defier that we're talking about. And the, man, the men of Israel said, Have you seen, underline that word, this man who has come up, surely he has come up to defile Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. The word there is the word that we get the Latin word video from. It's a detailed vision. It's a word that we call a reckoning word. It's a word that means when they see something, there was a transfer of information. There was a calculation. There was a rational calculation made by Israel when they looked at that man. They saw him in full detail and they were afraid. Such that when he draws close, they run. They look and they see the external. Why does David not run? Why does David look and when he talks to Saul say, you know what? He's no more than a lion or a bear. When Goliath says, have you come out with a stick like you'd come out with a dog? David should have said, yeah, that's the way I see you. You're no more than a stray cur of a dog. Saul and Israel look at Goliath. They look at Goliath. And what do they see? They look at the external and they calculate, he's too big. He's too strong. He could kill me. We would die. He would enslave us. He is walking death. Which, side road, have you ever noticed how we portray the Grim Reaper? I thought about this this week. Dark, 
is he taller than us or short? Is he a little short guy? And he's always tall. The Grim Reaper comes, and nobody can deny the Grim Reaper. It's a figure of Goliath. They looked at Goliath, and they saw their death for 40 days, and it's utter. And their king is not doing anything about it. Their king is not the champion. And David says, I will be your champion. Notice where he goes to Saul in verse 32. He says, let no man's heart fail. Do not let your heart be troubled. When I read that this week, I thought of Jesus looking at his disciples in the boat and saying, don't let your hearts be afraid. Don't let your hearts be troubled. But Lord, don't you understand? These waves are swamping our boat. I imagine there are, there's huge wind, there's white caps, water's coming in, they can't bail fast enough. And they're going to drown. They're looking at death. And Lord, you're saying, be not afraid? He says, be not afraid. Let not your hearts be troubled. What does it do to the waves? This rabbi, meek and mild, looks at the waves and he goes, shh, shh, shh. David stands before Saul and he says, don't let your heart quake and tremble. I will stand in the breach. And he goes forward with something that Saul doesn't have. He goes forward not in his name, but he goes in the name of the Lord. And he goes with the Spirit of the Lord. He goes in a relationship with the Lord such that he cannot abide with the Lord's name being dishonored or defiled. Are those practices of those that are defilers. He would not go along with that. He would stand up against them, even at the risk of his own life. David, we see, David is the defender champion. He is the one that comes along and he says, I will stand in the gap. Where did he learn that? He tells Saul that he learned it at the sheep pen. He learned it there in the wilderness area where the sheep were corralled and when the, when the bear or the lion would come, that he would destroy the bear of lion. Have you ever read, this is not poetic, license here that David has taken when he goes and he says in verse 35 if he rose up against me that is the bear or the lion I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him where I grew up uh, in Greenville in the area of Simpsonville there was a, a restaurant it was called the Old Mill Stream it's dead now uh, but it was the only place in town that you could really get fresh seafood. It was kind of a fish camp type of place. And we knew the owner, and as you would go into the Old Mill Stream, there was a dog cage with a bear in it. Now, me and my two brothers, we, man, love to see that bear. But if you talk to the owner, he didn't catch or capture that bear. But that bear was a reminder to him of his lifelong dream. His lifelong dream was to kill a bear with just his knife. He never did do that, by the way. Uh, that's not why they closed the restaurant. But here, how did David kill the bear and the lion? 
if necessary. Bare hands. And I would submit to you, he didn't do this, and he knew he did not do this, because he testifies, your servant struck. I, I was willing. I, I put my life on the line. I struck both the lions and the bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear will deliver me, the Lord who I have a relationship with. It's the Lord that I've given my life to. It's the Lord that I, my life is counted as nothing if I cannot serve Him. And I will stand against those that defile or dishonor, even the threat of sin to defile me. I will see that as an enemy. And when I face the grim reaper of a Goliath of death at the end of my life, I don't face it outside of a relationship with the Lord. I can face death or sin that seeks to enslave me because the battle is the Lord's and He has won it. We see that we have a champion and our champion is Jesus. In Psalm 27, verses 1 through 4, I've got to land the plane here. got excited this morning. I'm sorry. This is David's heart. This is the test that we can take to say, am I fearful of men? Do I worry? Am I anxious? Is the enemy of sin beating me to death? When I have considerations of death, I am full of fear, not confidence. David said in Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. You ever feel like you've been eaten up? My adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. This is the boy that's talking to Saul. One thing have I asked of the Lord. There's only one thing I need for the battle. That will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That I will have a promise. That I will have an eternal relationship with God that will never sever. Never be severed or never end. All the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. If I can um, if I can do one thing before we close. David this morning when you end as we end you're not asked to be like David. David didn't turn to Israel and say, now be like me. Take off your armor. Get your sling. Let's practice the, the sling like good archers and we will slay the Philistines. He didn't say that. He didn't do that. He didn't say, be like me. 
What he said, in essence, was be in a relationship. Your heart, now, your heart be in a relationship with God as I'm in a relationship that you may not be fearful of man, fearful of sin, or fearful of death. How do you get that heart? How do you get that heart of a champion? How do you get that heart of David? And David is Jesus. Jesus is our champion. He is our representative. He stands on the battlefield and the conflict is between sin and death and the living God and life forever with Him and the forgiveness of sin. And Jesus as our champion stands in that gap. And He wins. And at that point, for those that would believe in this champion, for all of Israel at that point who will now say, David, you are a rightful king. David, you're the one that's going to lead us out. David, we're going to follow you without fear. For all of those, they experience a transfer, as it were, of David's heart to theirs. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, through repentance, experiencing the forgiveness of our sin, there's a declaration that's made. It's called justification. It's a declaration in the heavens where God says, because you have embraced the representative champion of Jesus, you are now mine and forever. You are my people and this is your king forever. But God not only declares it and says it, there is a transformation that takes place where God sees it in us. It actually happens. Adam, Adam was innocent prior to the garden fall. But then Adam rebelled. He became independent of God. God would not be his king. He is going to be the boss, the king. Sin enters and the world is broken. So that now, Adam, our representative, we find that unlike innocence, we're filled with negatives. Sin. God comes to us and with the forgiveness of our sins, He wipes the slate clean. But we don't go back to just moral neutrality of innocence. We don't just go back to an innocent state to start again. What happens is God comes through our champion, our representative champion, and He gives us salvation by substitution. He gives us the life of Jesus within. He gives us, in giving us Jesus Christ, He gives us not only a great champion who won the victory, but by imputation, by transfer, Jesus' life is in my life. It's not that God comes and He forgives my heart to start again. He gives me a new heart. He gives me the heart of this champion. He gives me the heart of this Jesus who wants to bring glory to the Father. That's why. That's why we become that's why we're able to look at sin differently now. That's why we're able to look at death differently now. Because within, we have a confidence 
in a faith that Jesus, by the accomplishment of his death on the cross, not only, like David, risked his life to be our champion, but he lost his life to be a champion. And that victory over death is now transferred to us with the promise of the resurrection. We come to this table. And this morning, this table is not a memorial table of mourning the death of Jesus, but it's a table that we celebrate the death of Jesus. We don't raise the glass of wine to forget what was done, to become sodden and drunken, to forget a bad memory. We raise our glass to cheer and to remember that on that day that Jesus was crucified, he was seen, nobody that day knew that a victory was being accomplished. No more than looking at David that they felt like he was going to be their champion in victory. That day, Jesus was taunted by the priests and the rulers. He was taunted by the soldiers. He was even taunted by fellow criminals that were dying a criminal's death. But even as he was taunted and he was laid bare in all weakness, the spirit and the power of God was at work so that he would receive glory for his child's death on our behalf. And that is now transferred to us so that when we eat, we not simply remember his death on our behalf, but we are quickened. I get fuel for life so that I can throw my life in the breach this week for God so that I can do things this week strengthened by how his death brought glory to God, I can throw my little life, I can risk death for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, please set aside this bread and this cup for those two great purposes, that we might raise our glass and eat to remember and reflect, and then to worship you as our great champion and victor, we have no fear now of being completely undone by sin or completely overcome in death. For you have conquered, and it is finished. But also, Father, give us life. We don't, in this story, we're so like Israel. We're so like Israel. May we be like Israel who see Jesus as our champion and follow him into the fight. Follow Him, for that's where life lies. So, Father, use these things for that noble purpose, even for the glory of Your Son, Christ, the victor, in whose name we pray. Amen.